<clears throat> okay, well, thanks. Uh, uh, thank, I want to thank everyone for coming. Uh, I think it's a, it's a very interesting, very important um, workshop that we've set up. I, I, I was telling Michael before, I think this is, must be one of the first in the world that's really kind of dedicated to this topic of panpsychism. Uh, usually we're some kind of a small uh, side uh, discussion in a larger conference, and we spend most of our time trying to defend the view against the critics. So, so this is the point that you have raised. And uh, this is fine. I mean, it's kind of interesting, and it's, part of, it's an important part of the discussion. But I think we also sort of have to have a time to, to kind of move ahead as well. So I'm hoping in this workshop we can spend time moving ahead without spending all of our time defending the view, which is, I, I think this has been my experience and probably some of the other who, who are here as well. Uh, I mean, I'm happy to defend, uh, defend the, the, the view. I'm going to say a few things about it in my presentation. Of course, we have question uh, time, so we can answer the challenges this way. Um, but you, you, know, you don't want to spend all your time sort of being on the defense. You want to be on the offense. You want to promote the view and look at the uh, consequences and elaborate the theory a little bit. And this is what I hope we, that we can achieve. So I think it's a, it's a great uh, objective of this workshop. I wanted to thank Michael. He did a tremendous job of organizing this thing. Uh, really over the last few months. Uh, uh, he really pulled everything together and worked with the budgets and planning everything. So I, I think he's done a tremendous job. I, I wish I had someone like him at the University of Michigan <laughs> to, to, do, to do these things. <clears throat> I, I was telling a few of the guys earlier that this is uh, my third talk in, in Europe. Uh, I've been traveling now for two weeks. Um, I gave a talk in Brussels at the Free University of Brussels. Then I flew to Warsaw and was in a, a two-day uh, symposium there. And so now I'm here. Uh, this is my third, third uh, event that I'm speaking at. So it's been a lot of traveling, you know, in my small suitcase. I think I checked in. This is my hotel number six that I've, uh, that I've been in. And uh, I, the one just before here, I was in Krakow meeting with a colleague in philosophy at the University of, of Krakow. And in my room, I was staying in a guest house that was part of the Jagiellonian University. It's one of the oldest universities uh, in Europe. And uh, it was a very nice, nice place. Uh, you know, the room was nice, but it was pretty cheap. Not very fancy. The bed was not so good. I, rem I remember this. A and I was talking to the woman at the desk. I was giving, making a little joke. And I said, you know, I think I got the, I got the special Copernicus room because I think my mattress is 500 years old. A and, uh, she didn't really understand what I was saying. And she says, oh, no, don't worry. All the mattresses are like that. <laughs> so OK, so I, so I guess this is like real history. <laughs> you get to sleep on an authentic, uh, authentic bed. But uh, yeah, anyway, so it's been a very sort of enlightening kind of, uh, kind of time. Um, but anyway, so, so to, to go to the discussion here on, um, on panpsychism, um, so let me. Uh, Go ahead. I'll probably talk for about 45 minutes, and then we'll uh, leave some time for question and, and, and answer, and then we'll do a little break, I think, after my talk. So, yeah. So um, I thought I would start off with this uh, quote here. Um, British philosopher Samuel Alexander from 1920, Space, Time, and Deity was the book. Time is the mind of space. Is everyone familiar with that quote? It's a rather famous line. People, how many people have heard that line before? Familiar with anybody? Yeah, a couple of you, yeah. Anybody? Anybody wonder what that actually means? It's kind of a 
kind of a cryptic line from Alexander. I don't know if Alexander is not very well known. Uh, time is the mind of space. I'm not sure even he knew what it, what it means, but it's an interesting idea. Apparently, he's trying to make a connection between nature and the human being, the human body. And he says the human being has these two aspects, the mind and the body. So Alexander's thesis was everything in nature must have the same two aspects. So he says, look at space-time. Space-time is the ultimate reality. And in space-time, time is like the mind, and space is like the body. This was his idea. So space-time is like mind-body, right? Time is the mind, body is space. So I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, concept, you know, that this, this somehow that our structure, the structure of the human being or the human body, has to be mirrored in ultimate reality, the most essential reality that we know of, which he's talking about space and time. So time was the mind of space. Space is the body of time. It's a kind of an interesting, almost a poetic sort of, sort of uh, idea. But I think it, it really gets to, to kind of the heart of what we're talking about here. You know, how do we recognize humanity? How do we integrate humanity into the world in a very natural kind of way? And what can, what can we extend from our knowledge of ourselves to a knowledge of, of the world in general or reality in general? Okay. Okay, so let me give you the outline for the talk uh, today. Uh, five basic parts to the talk. I'll begin with a couple of uh, fundamental truths. Um, Secondly, a little bit of a, a defense of panpsychism versus physicalism. We'll talk about a couple problems with emergence. I put it in the form of three questions. So those of you who are still somehow uh, thinking panpsychism is a little crazy uh, or something, or you're a committed physicalist, uh, I have three questions for you to answer. And if you can answer those, then, then, I, then I'll be happy and I'll be able to, <laughs> to go on my way. So we'll talk about those. Uh, the third part. Uh, Starting to deal with this composition problem or combination problem, I'll, I'll have some comments on the body as a sort of composition of minds, a kind of collection or a society of minds in the human body. This is an interesting idea itself. It actually has quite a historical background, so I wanted to give a few quotes from, from history, some, some well-known philosophers in history. We'll do some historical perspectives on this question. And then uh, lastly, uh, part five, uh, moving ahead on the combination problem. So some thoughts on how we can uh, elaborate this thing called the combination problem, try to come up with some solutions. Uh, it's an important issue, and we really need to address it if we're going to take panpsychism seriously. So I'll just give you a few thoughts. I don't have a comprehensive solution. Say something about this idea of mind space. Uh, introduce a sort of a new concept that I've been working on lately. I've called the space-time qualia complex. And then closing with a few thoughts on the unity of mind. So, yeah, it's probably quite a bit for 45 minutes, but see what we think. So, okay, so part one, a couple of fundamental truths that we want to look at. So here's number one. Uh, in fact, Michael talked about this as well. Um, there is no more basic fact of existence than subjective experience. So I kind of take this as an essential truth. Uh, subject, uh, subjectivity I'm equating to experientiality, to qualia, and to mind. I'm not going to argue about the definitions of those. I treat those as relatively synonymous. 
Uh, but this fact of subjective experience, this seems to be the starting point. It's really very hard to deny this. If you do deny it, it leads you in a completely different direction. It's almost uh, difficult to even have a dialogue about mind if you deny that subjective experience is an ultimate fact of reality. So I think we need to take this as one of our starting points. Secondly, maybe a little bit more controversial, uh, monism. And again, Michael mentioned a few things. I I'm, will I'm, assume that metaphysical monism is true. Uh, if for no other reason, I think we have no other competitor. There's really no viable competition to, to some kind of monism. Uh, Michael talked about dualism. To me, uh, dualism means real substance dualism, classical Cartesian kind of dualism. And I think really no one is willing to defend that today. It's been a long time since we've had people willing to defend real substance kind of dualism. So I think that's not really a viable option. Uh, maybe pluralism is a possibility, but again, no one really is talking about our true kind of substance pluralism. We don't see any defense of that. I think really all we see is kind of various forms of, of monism. So I think this is really the, the most viable option. Uh, if somebody wants to debate that point, I'm, I'm happy to do so. But I think we're sort of in this, in this position. Okay. So, okay, so if we accept uh, monism must be the case, so, well, there's different kinds of monism. So, of course, we have the standard form of monism that we can call physicalism or materialism. This is the standard convention. But there's some issues here. We know, first of all, that standard physicalism cannot explain mind, really. It has no explanation for mind. In particular, it cannot explain the emergence of mind. Right? So on the assumption of physicalism, you have a base physical matter which has no mind at all, no experience. It's a completely uh, non-experiential substance. Somehow out of this non-experiential foundation, mind uh, apparently emerges. We have no concept of how that's possible, how it works. Uh, I'll say more about that here shortly. So this is one major problem. In general, it's really hard to conceive of what this thing called uh, physicalism means. Uh, I like this quote from Nagel from his 1974 article. He really says, we have no conception of how it might be true, how physicalism might be true. We really don't understand how it even could be true. Uh, Levine, more recently, 2001, says, we really can't understand how it could be true. How could physicalism be true? There's no role for mind. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, explain the mind. It has no concept of mind, really. Right? This is conventional uh, materialism. And of course, uh, more recently, our friend uh, Galen Strassen says it's obviously false. Obviously. So uh, I guess we need to consider alternatives, alternatives to the conventional physicalism kind, kind of monism. Well, okay, so we have one historical alternative. It's called idealism. Idealism, uh, this is my definition, conceived as the idea that mind is the ultimate reality and the physical is reducible to or supervenes on the mental. I think this is the standard classical definition of idealism. I think it's uh, important uh, to have this definition here because I know uh, historically some people have said panpsychism is a form of idealism. 
And I've disagreed with that, I think, because this is a very precise definition of idealism, and I do not accept that this counts uh, for all forms of panpsychism. It's, it's a subset, but it's not a general definition. So I do not see panpsychism as a form of idealism. So just as a side comment. Of course, there have been some famous idealists in the past. We have historical precedent, possibly Plato, depending on how you interpret him. Of course, Berkeley, Kant, uh, Hegel, and others. But I think at present, again, there seems to be no real viable conception of idealism at present. We don't really see uh, current rational defenses of idealism, at least not that I'm aware of. Okay. Another form of uh, monism. Uh, neutral monism. This is conceived uh, as uh, uh, the one reality is a sort of a neutral monistic substance or entity which is neither mind nor matter and upon which both mind and matter supervene. Okay? So something that's not mind, not matter, both of them reduce down to or supervene on this neutral substance, whatever it may be. So we have, again, some historical precedent for various forms of neutral monism going all the way back to an examander, David Hume, Whitehead, Russell, uh, David Bohm, different forms of this theory. We do have a viable theory. Uh, the, as I interpret it, process philosophy is a kind of neutral monism. Process is the ultimate reality. Mind and matter are sort of uh, reducible to or supervene on this concept of process. So this is. This is a, a one valid option. Of course, this does have a potential conflict with the first truth that I offered on the, on the first sl slide, that somehow mental reality is a fundamental thing. A neutral monist says mind is not really fundamental. Something else, process, or some other third thing is really fundamental. And I think that doesn't quite reflect this intuition, which is possibly a problem. So here's another form, a third form of monism, dual aspect monism. Okay. Now this is actually, it's, it's a little bit confusing. It's uh, similar to what Michael talked about. It's similar to what Chalmers calls naturalistic dualism. The terms are a bit confusing, uh, and it, it's a little bit unsatisfactory. So let me give you my definition. Dual aspect monism, conceived as both mind and matter are co-fundamentals, neither reducible to the other, neither reducible to any third thing. They're just two aspects of a single monistic reality of some kind. Okay. I think this is compatible with both of the truths that we talked about at the beginning, that experience is fundamental, because mind is, in fact, one of the two fundamental aspects of reality. And it is, uh, of course, a monism. Okay. Some historical precedent for dual aspect monism, uh, Spinoza. Spinoza may be more of a multi-aspect monism, but that's a different argument. Schopenhauer, Paulson, Peirce, and some others. Uh, there's an argument which you can say that dual aspect monism is a kind of a generalized form of neutral monism. So there's not always a complete uh, conflict there. Uh, but I think it's certainly a viable option. This is, this is the option that I have sort of been promoting as kind of the best way forward. Seems to respect our basic intuitions about reality, and it's, it's compatible with what we are, are thinking about mind and consciousness these days. Okay. 
Okay, so that's part one. On to part two. Problems with emergence. Here's three questions for those of you who might still be leaning towards physicalism. Of course, we know that physicalism assumes that basic matter, basic reality is not mental. Somehow mind emerges from this non-experiential reality. Physicalism demands a form of, of emergence that is it's a truly brute kind of emergence, mind from utterly non-experiential reality. Okay, this is the very difficult question. Uh, in fact, there's really no widely accepted theory at present. I'm not sure there's any accepted theory at present, let alone a widely accepted one. Uh, I think there's been some different proposals, but uh, really nothing that really uh, has, a, has a gained a kind of following. It's a serious problem. Uh, Strassen says uh, brute emergence is literally incoherent. It's incoherent to try to understand how mind can come from something that has no mind whatsoever, how experience can come from something that has no experience at all. Okay. And it's such a serious problem, it's potentially unsolvable in principle. There may be no solution to it within any confines of normal physicalism. It may be an unsolvable problem for physicalism. Okay. So, uh, yeah, okay. So just to give you some flavor about how serious this problem is, this problem of emergence. So here's three questions uh, for someone who believes that mind emerges from non-mind. First one is a historical question. So looking back into the past, into the history of this earth, when in the past did mind first emerge? Okay. It must have emerged sometime. We have it today. I guess we did not have it, I don't know, four billion years ago. Sometime in history, boom, uh, mind must have emerged. When was that? Okay, well, we should have some kind of an answer. Was it with Homo sapiens, you know, 200,000 years ago? Homo erectus, two million years ago. Australopithecus, right, five million years ago. Dinosaurs, <laughs> did the dinosaurs have experiential qualities? Yeah, probably. First life, three billion years ago. Before the first life, I, I don't know. It seems like we should have some idea about when and maybe why, if there's an evolutionary explanation, mind emerged from no mind. Seems like we should have a kind of answer to that. Okay. So that's one question. The second question is what I call the phylogenic question. Which organisms today, on the earth today, possess mind, are able to experience things in a subjective sense, and which ones are not? Okay. So we can be uh, sort of Cartesians and say human beings only. Humans are the only beings on this planet that experience that have minds and nothing else does. Well, I don't think anyone's happy to defend that view. Maybe our fellow primates who are 98% similar to us with DNA, maybe they're, maybe us, the primates are the only ones that experience things today. I like this one's my favorite answer to this question. The so-called higher animals, you see this a lot in the, in the uh, writings, higher animals are those that experience mind and the lower animals don't. But they never tell you what are the higher animals and what are the lower animals. Where's the line between the higher ones and the lower ones and why is there a line just there? 
never give you an answer. They just give you a very general solution. It's the higher animals. Yeah, it's a, it's a very funny kind of, a, kind of statement, you know? Maybe it's all animals. Maybe all animal life has experiential qualities and subjective feelings and can feel pleasure and pain, right? Well, what about plants? Some people want to say, well, all living things experience the world, experiences of pleasure and pain and so forth. Well, of course, plants are alive. Maybe we should include plants in the process, right? We have large plants. We have small plants. We have one-celled plants and animals. We have amoeba and plankton. Wait, we have DNA molecules. We have viruses. Do we include those in the list or don't we? And why or why not? There's no good answer to this question. Third question for those emergentists, the ontogenic question, it's best related in terms of a human fetus. Okay. So at what point does a fetus that's developing in the womb develop, acquire, at what point does it acquire a mind? Presumably a newborn baby has some kind of a mind. It can experience the world, feels pain, and so forth, has wants and desires, right? Presumably the egg cell, the fertilized egg, right at conception, it's just one cell. It's just a single cell. Presumably that does not. So you have a fertilized egg. Nine months later you have a mind. When in this process did, boom, suddenly you have mind where before you had none? That's an interesting question, right? So when does it show up? Does it show up at birth as soon as the baby comes out of the mother's womb? Boom, now suddenly it has mind. I, I don't think that's probably defendable. You know, is it a few days before birth, third trimester, you know, two-thirds of the way through its development? Is it the moment of conception? Is it an egg cell? Is it, you know, egg as soon as the sperm hits the egg, does it have a mind? What about the egg before the sperm hits it? Does the egg cell have a mind? Right. Difficult sort of questions, right? I think we have no good answers. These are really unanswered and maybe uh, unanswerable sorts of questions. It seems like those are basic sort of questions. If you believe in physicalism and you believe that mind emerges from no mind at all, you should have some kind of answer to at least those three questions. And I think we, we don't. We just believe that there must be some answer. We don't know what they are. And uh, that's a very strange position to, to take, right? It's, it's basically a kind of faith, a faith that it must be possible. We don't know how, but it must be possible. Okay. So I think this maybe suggests, it's not a, a firm argument, of course, but it suggests that emergentism is indeed incoherent, as Galen Strawson has said, and thus is invalid. It's not really a valid concept. And if emergentism is invalid, Physicalism itself is seriously flawed uh, on this account alone. In fact, this is possibly an Achilles heel. A critical flaw in physicalism is that it cannot produce a comprehen comprehensible or a coherent theory of emergentism. If you don't have that, physicalism itself seems to make no sense, arguably. Okay, so much for that. I'm sure we'll have some other discussions on that point. But let's go on to part three. Body is a kind of composition of minds. Okay, so 
given dual aspectism, which is dual aspect monism, and the failure of emergentism to make sense, it seems that some form of panpsychism is likely to be true. This suggests that mind or experience exists at many levels within the human body, for example, just to take one, one example. So, okay, if this is the case, if there are many levels of mind in the body, we'd like to know what is the relationship, if any, between the higher order minds and the lower order ones. All right, it's a straightforward question. It's a fair question. We should be able to address this one. And this relates directly to this uh, most important issue called the combination problem. Namely, are the higher order minds somehow composed of the lower order ones? Do they add together? Do they sum up to create higher order minds? Okay. Yeah. It's a fair question. It's an important point. So I'll give you some of my thoughts here. Um, on my view, in fact, it's true. I would say it's fact, uh, I would argue that in fact all levels of the body do indeed have this uh, ability to experience things. Atoms, molecules, cells, organs. Okay. Many levels of mind going on simultaneously within the human body. These minds exist in parallel, going on concurrently with one another, functioning simultaneously. On my view, the lesser minds, the lower order minds, are a kind of a subset or a subspace of the higher order ones. And I'll come back to that in part five. We'll talk a little bit about my ideas on that. Okay. But I want to give you a little bit of a historical perspective. <coughs> um, in fact, I mean, it, this could be a very long discussion. If we really want to look at the historical perspective on panpsychism in general, it has a very lengthy history. Those of you maybe who are sort of new to the, to the topic, uh, the ideas go all the way back to the pre-Socratics and many important philosophers throughout history have supported or argued for some form of panpsychism. It really is an unknown story in the history of Western philosophy. So if you're curious about it, I would suggest you look into it and, and look into one of my books or articles. And I try to lay out some of this important history of this idea of panpsychism. It's when you have so many important philosophers who have argued for something like this, you say it's can't really be such a crazy idea. All these great philosophers can't be wrong. There must have been a kind of intuition that something like this must be true. Otherwise, you would not see this idea repeated throughout history. Okay. But I wanted to give you just a few historical perspectives um, on, on this uh, issue of uh, the body having different levels of mind within the human body. Even this idea, we see some historical precedent. So here's a nice one going back to Parmenides uh, on the parts of the body experiencing. Parmenides said this. He said, for in each and all men, tis one thing that thinks, the substance of their limbs. Okay. This is quoted in Aristotle, Metaphysics. Uh, we have Schopenhauer to thank. He, he picked this out as being an important quote. Okay, jumping up uh, several centuries, of course, to Leibniz. Here's one of my favorite quotes from Leibniz, talking about the unity. Michael again mentioned this uh, uh, briefly. Uh, Leibniz was trying to figure out how things cohered together in, in a kind of a singular sense of unity. And he said, 
certain objects, certain things, possess a thoroughly indivisible and naturally indestructible being. I really like that phrase. That's a nice phrase. Thoroughly indivisible, naturally indestructible being. 1686. He's referring to this idea of a dominant monad, those of you who know something about Leibniz. The body or any object is composed of many monads. One of them somehow rises to the top and dominates all the others. It's the sense of unity of the whole. But it's not a kind of composition. The dominant monad is a higher order mind, but it's not composed of the lower order ones. It's just like the general or the boss or the president. It rises to the top and it controls the whole thing. Now, as a consequence of his monadology, Leibniz thought that the parts of the body did experience, or there was some kind of connection between experiencing and the body operation. He said, I maintain that something happens in the soul corresponding to the circulation of the blood and to every internal movement of the viscera, although one is unaware of such happenings. Unaware of it at the higher level, it's going on at a lower level, the movements of the body as some kind of corresponding something, some event in the soul, in the psyche, in the mind. Yep. Right. Diderot. Okay. Uh, Diderot, I think he's a sort of an underappreciated philosopher. Most people think of him as a literary person or a poet or something, but he was also a bit of a philosopher himself. Uh, Diderot made this comment uh, on a swarm of bees. Uh, bees are all you know, swarming together. This cluster of bees is a being, an individual, an animal of sorts. This collection of bees. Diderot said, unity occurs through continual action and reaction, a kind of exchange. Okay? Contact, this exchange, contact in itself is enough to make a unified sort of being. On the sentient organs in the body, Diderot said, in all seriousness, I believe that the foot, the hand, the thighs, the belly, the stomach, the chest, the lungs, the heart have their own particular sensations. All parts of the body have sensations. Okay. Nietzsche, from uh, 1880s. Our body is only a social structure composed of many souls. Okay. You don't normally hear Nietzsche talking about souls. He's talking about psyche or mind or will. Right? But the body is a social structure, a society of, of souls or minds. I thought that was a kind of an insightful comment. And then a few quotes here from William James. We'll talk about him more, I think, in this uh, conference here today. So we know James uh, uh, initially opposed the combination problem. Here's a well-known quote from 1890. He said, take 100 elemental feelings, shuffle and pack them together as close together as you can. Still it remains the same feeling it always was, each individual one, shut in its own skin, windowless, ignorant of what the other feelings are and mean. 
So this is his early position. Combination is not possible. Feelings are somehow minds. Sensations are separate. They can never combine. All right. This is his initial view. He changed his position throughout his life. In the end, James endorsed both the idea of combination of minds and what he called pluralistic panpsychism. James said, each total field, meaning a higher order of consciousness, is a distinct entity. The higher fields merely supersede the lower functionally by knowing more about the same subject. Okay. So they're both perceiving the same things. The higher order minds know more. The lower order minds know less. But they have the same kind of subject. If there was no combination in the universe, this is a serious problem. A universe without combination is almost intolerable. It makes the universe a discontinuous place. Okay, this is 1909. And again, about the same time, talking about the feelings, the sensations in the body. James said, to sum up, mental facts can compound themselves if you take them concretely and livingly. They can count variously and figure into different constellations without ceasing to be themselves. My arm feelings can be, though unnoticed. They can also be noticed and cooperate with my eye feelings in a total consciousness of, for example, my arm. Okay. So feelings in the limbs, individual sensations, participating or cooperating into higher order sensations. Okay. okay. So, last part, part five, moving ahead on the combination problem and trying to uh, give a little bit of a, a positive theory on this whole, whole issue. So moving ahead, what is the relationship between our component minds, the lower order minds, and the sort of one high level personal mind that we have? Okay. So a couple of questions here. Two questions. Number one, how can simple things yield something complex? This is one issue. Second question is how can many unify into one? Those are really two separate issues. The issue of taking many things and somehow combining them into one, and the question of taking simple minds and yielding a complex mind. Those are two different aspects of this problem. So I think we need to try to, to, uh, try to address both of those issues. And I'll try to talk something about each of those points. So to do sort of what uh, Ricardo had suggested, let's compare it to the physical realm first before we sort of deal with the mental realm. Look at the physical realm. Large uh, physical complexity like the human body or the human brain is a product of ultimates which are A, simple, and B, few in number, meaning few types. So we have simple ultimates, the physical ultimates, and there's only a few kinds of them. We have the quarks, the leptons, and the bosons, if I understand uh, particle physics presently. There's only 
I know, the six kinds of quarks, and I think there's, what, three kinds of leptons, that's an electron and a neutrino and something else, and I think there's four bosons, which mediate the four fundamental forces. It's a relatively small number of types of particles, each of which is very simple. Somehow they compose complex objects like my body and my brain. So there's kind of two aspects to this. How can this be? Well, okay, I guess the first answer is there's a very large number of these particles. In my body and in my brain, we have a tremendously high number, billions or whatever, trillions of these simple particles. This is one thing. Secondly, it's not just a mass of particles. These ultimate particles combine into what I'm calling a nested hierarchy of physical structures. The particles form atoms, the atoms form molecules, molecules form proteins, proteins form cells. It's a hierarchy of complexity. And therefore, they interact with the world in a complex way. Okay. I think these are two separate, again, two separate and important aspects of this, of this issue. Each additional ultimate particle in a being and each additional layer of hierarchy expands the realm of possible states for the whole body, for the whole object. The range of possible physical states, again, we're just talking physical here, not mental. The range of physical states can be mapped as a kind of configuration space. It's a space of possible physical states that a given object can be in. So the more ultimate particles you have in your object and the more hierarchical complexity, the larger the space of possible states that the thing can be in. This means the larger your configuration space. Okay, okay. so in configuration space, just to put some, some, some kind of terms around it, let's say the number of the ultimates in an object constitutes the width, how wide the space is. The degree of structural complexity, this is a different dimension, let's call this the depth of the space, how deep the space is. So we can uh, at least metaphorically talk about a volume. How large is this physical space? Well, it's the width times the depth. It's how many particles times how much complexity there is in the object. So, for example, compare two things. Compare an 80 kilogram person with an 80 kilogram rock. Okay? So they have the same number of particles. The mass is the same, the number of quarks and leptons and so forth. They're the same in each case. So I would say, well, both these objects have an equal width. The configuration space is equally wide, the same number of particles. But something is different. Well, it's a very different depth because the rock has very low structural complexity. The human body has very sophisticated and complex sort of hierarchy. Okay. Equally wide, but the rock has a very shallow kind of space and the human has a very deep kind of space. Okay. That's all in physical world. Now, I would say, based on my assumptions, I think an analogous process occurs with the mind, with experiential complexity. 
So again, we say, well, the ultimates they can experience, because we allow experience to go down to the ultimate particles of existence, but of course they have a very small range, a very narrow range of experience to a, to a quark or an electron, very small. Okay. But of course, when many ultimates interact, just like in the physical space, we have a collective mental space, we'll call it a mind space, is created okay, in a similar way as the physical. The mind space is created which has a width corresponding to how many particles you have in your, in your object or your system. If the ultimates form into some kind of hierarchical complexity, a hierarchical structure, then the mind space also has a corresponding depth has a mental depth and a mental width. Okay. And again, just as with the physical, if you have a width and a depth, you can sort of calculate a kind of a volume. The volume of this mind space, this mental space, which is the range of the mental states of the whole, is equal to something like width times depth. The more particles, the more complexity, the, the richer the, the mental state of the object as a whole. Okay. So a couple of consequences that come from this view, uh, uh, I think. First of all, I would claim there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between physical complexity, which happens in configuration space, and experiential complexity, which happens in mind space. There's a necessary correlation between those two. Okay. More physical complexity means more mental complexity. Lower physical complexity means less mental complexity. But of course, this is not dualism. It's still monism. It's dual aspect monism. There's no interaction. There's no dualism here, right? So each subsystem, each atom, molecule, cell, etc., on this view, retains its own mind within a subspace, a small space, of the larger mind space of the, of the object as a whole. Okay? So we have subspaces within a larger space, minds going on at different levels in this hierarchy. Each submind participates in, but is unaware of, the higher order mind. It's somehow participating without really knowing what's going on. So, comparing these two spaces, what do the configuration space and the mind space have in common? Well, it's time. The temporal aspect. Things change in physical world with time. Things change in the mental world with time. It's the same dimension. It's the same aspect. Time is the common quality to the physical realm and the mental realm. That's something important, I think, the fact that it's the same time in each case. Right? Both spaces, in other words, share the same temporal dimension. Of course, in physical world, in configuration space, we talk about space-time. It's physical space conjoined with time. It's a four-dimensional entity, space-time. This is in the physical realm. The mental realm is something different. It's different experiential qualities that change with time. So mind space represents different experiential states or qualia, we can, we can say. So it's a kind of qualia time, not space time. It's qualia time. Okay. 
So if you want to take the sum total of reality to, to, to encompass the physical and the mental realms all together, you have to include all these aspects. It's space and time and qualia. These spaces overlap in this dimension of time. So the sum total of reality is the space-time-qualia-STQ complex, this complex of space and time and quality. They're joined by this dimension of, of time. Okay, so then the last, last point here, last couple slides. On this question of unity, this idea of unifying things, I would say that this STQ complex allows us to see how billions of individual minds can combine, in a sense, to form a single higher order mind. And again, it's helpful to compare it to the physical case. Look at the physical situation. How do billions of physical ultimates combine to form one large-scale object? Right? That's exactly the question that Ricardo was asking earlier. Well, I think Diderot had it right. Persistence, contact, interaction. This seems to be the key. In particular, when the interaction among the components, the elements, are stronger than the interactions with the environment. Right? Many objects interacting closely relative to their background environment, when they interact strong, more strongly with themselves than the background, we see them as a single object. If many things interact more strongly with their environment than with each other, we see them as many different things. So it's this question of internal interaction is stronger than external interaction. I think this somehow must get, get to the heart of that question. So here's maybe my most profound point I have to give you here today. <laughs> Wherever a persistent physical unity exists, there too, in the same degree, does a mental unity exist. This is my proposal. Physical unity is marked by changes in configuration space, the space of physical possibilities. Similarly, mental unity is marked by changes in something like a mind space, right? Of course, unity, we cannot avoid it. Unity is a kind of a fuzzy concept. We really cannot make it as precise as we might like. In real physical objects, again, just physically speaking, unity is really a very fuzzy kind of concept. Of course, we have fuzzy boundaries, even to the human body. I mean, it looks kind of clear-cut, but if you look at your body at close enough scale, you see sort of fuzzy edges, and, and particles are sort of breaking off and joining, you know, co combining with your body and so forth. Boundaries of things are fuzzy. Objects are continually changing over time. They're taking in material or giving off material. We have this kind of dynamic interaction with the environment, okay, with physical objects. So just like with a physical thing, even just a simple physical thing, a, a, a rock or something, it's a, it's a fuzzy concept, what constitutes the unity of the, the physical thing. I think it's the same way with the mind. Okay? The unity of our mind, or the mind of any object, is also a fuzzy concept. It's a kind of a rough temporal unity, not a clear-cut, absolute sort of thing. So, yeah, I, 
guess this is really where I, where I want to sort of leave it, that, that, you know, again, I think all these things sort of follow from this idea of this dual aspect monism, treating uh, mind as fundamental, taking panpsychism seriously, trying to address this combination problem. Okay. I think these are at least some of the, some of the topics that, that need to be discussed. These are some of the ideas that we need to uh, press forward on. Uh, hopefully it's a little bit of something on the way to a solution to this problem.